0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: When I looked out the window, when I felt the tremor and I saw the flames coming out of the back of the engines, that's why I pulled the shade down. I mean, I couldn't bear the thought of sitting and watching these flames working their way towards me.
2: It's that moment we all dread. The moments the plane you're sitting in does what everyone tells you will never
1: happen. The plane was about to crash. We were going to burn to death.
3: Mayday, Mayday, Jakarta Control, Speedbird 9. We have lost all four engines. Repeat, all four engines.
1: The fear to me was was just like a cold chill. Staring d- death in the face is, is something that we're, we're not programmed for it.
0: Welcome to Days Like These. Today, our lead reporter, Pat Bood, is taking us on a plane ride. Well,
2: Ellie, it's not exactly a plane ride. It's more like a plane glide.
0: <laughs> and I, I am terrified of the next thing that you're about to say because I feel like I've been living most of my adult life comforted by a fact that a friend once told me this friend was training to be a pilot. It's the 10-second rule. Basically, the idea is 99% of air accidents happen in the first 10 seconds after takeoff, And after that, you're pretty much in the clear. And now I have a terrible feeling, Pat, that you are about to expose that as a handy and comforting lie.
2: Uh, I am, and (laughs) I wish I could tell you otherwise, Ellie, except it did happen to a guy called Evan Dillner. When the plane he was on mid-flight literally fell from the sky.
0: Oh, God. Okay, so it's buses and boats and trains for me from now on. Looks like it, at least
2: for you anyway, Ellie. (laughs) For the rest of us, welcome aboard British Airways Flight 9.
4: We'll be passing through the cabin to make
3: sure we are ready for departure. You can help us by, again, ensuring your seatbelts fastened, seatback and tray table blur stone, and then all carry-on items are right away. It's June
2: 24, 1982. You, when 262 passengers, fill a Boeing 747. Captain Eric Moody is your pilot.
3: It was a very black night. There was no moon. We lurched into the air and just climbed straight up to 37,000 feet. I had plenty of fuel on board because fuel was cheap in Kuala Lumpur and dearer in Perth where we were going. It was a normal flight. I got to the top of climb, put in the autopilot and I did normal things like two or three crosswords. You can't sit there for, what, 12, 13 hours sometimes doing nothing. Just looking out the window or looking at the instruments, you can do
1: crosswords. We're here to make sure you have a safe and comfortable flight... London, you Bombay, Bombay, KL, KL, Perth, Perth, Auckland. It's going to be a slog. We hope that you enjoy the Jeffler experience. I boarded with um, a briefcase, and that was it. And in the briefcase were some essentials, including a Sony Walkman, a few other bits and pieces. The cabin mood was pretty good. Good bunch of people. Quite buzzy people talking, had a meal... Back then, people could still smoke on flights. You know, people smoked on the toilets, they smoked on the galleys, and people were still ordering drinks when uh, when it all started to
3: unfold. I could see smoke billowing in around where the air conditioning air comes in, around what we would call in England the skirting board. I could smell sulfuric electrical burning smell. The engineer officer began to ruin the evening when he said number four engines failed.
2: What Captain Moody, his crew or any of the passengers didn't know was a volcano erupted just as the 747 flew right over it, spewing volcanic ash up into the sky directly into the plane's
3: engines. And then the flight engineer said, number two's gone, number three's gone. And something like, oh goodness me, we've lost a lot. All four engines ostensibly failed. They weren't working at all. Mayday, Mayday, Jakarta control.
2: The plane loses 009. all power. All Smoke fills the cabin and flight 009 is falling from the sky.
3: We went down from 37,000 feet to 12 and a thousand feet. We were working bloody hard, doing checklists, going through the routines of trying to get engines started. It really was a mess we were thinking out. We practiced in the simulator many, many times, four engine failures in a jumbo. And this thing did not behave on that evening at all like we were told it would happen. And that was the most confusing part of the whole incident. And unless we got some power back, we were doomed. And I didn't want to die.
2: While the death clock was ticking in the cockpit, Captain Moody's way with words were his only win. This time, not in a crossword, but a game-changing cabin announcement. His turn of phrase would become the defining moment of the entire British Airways, Flight Nine incident.
1: Captain Moody's announcement when things started to um, go pear-shaped has been described as a masterpiece of British understatement.
3: Good evening again, ladies and gentlemen. It's Captain Derek Moody here. It was
1: um, short sixing.
3: We have a small problem,
1: and he wasn't wasting any words.
3: In that all four engines have failed, and I trust you're not in too much distress.
1: Not a sign of worry or panic from the crew. He had to um, announce his plans without raising fear level, I guess, in the cabin. Down firmly on
2: the mask to start the flow of oxygen.
1: There was no sense of panic. And that was the thing that got me. I, um, I, I couldn't hear raised voices. And um, I'd become a little nervous about any, any change in either um, noise or vibration in the aircraft. And I felt a, I felt a tremor and I looked out the window, and that's when I saw the flames coming out of the back of the engine, saw the, the red streaks, and uh, I couldn't bear the thought of sitting and watching these flames working their way towards me. And then volcanic ash came pouring up the, uh, through the cabin, and that's when I pulled down the shades, and with the girls behind me, pulled down their shades and said to them, just don't look. People want to know what happened. Very few people have ever asked me, and in fact, I think you're the first, who's actually asked me about how it really affects me emotionally. The fact that I was going to not see my family again. You know, I was gonna leave a, a lovely wife and kids. Um, I was asking I was asking God to, to save my life. And I was um, asking him to save my life, not only because I, I didn't want to die, but I wanted to see my family again. I wanted to see my sons, you know, I had a, um, an eight-week-old eight baby, um, you know, yeah. The 12 minutes that we were without power, sitting there with that eerie silence would have probably been the longest 12 minutes of my life. If you've ever driven down a hill with a manual car and slipped it into neutral, you you can hear the wheels turning on the road, and you can hear the wind going on hitting the car on the windscreen. But you cannot feel the the power and the vibration and the life in the car. It's gone. You hear nothing else. Well, it was, that's what the plane was like. It was eerie. I was pretty much convinced at that point we were going to burn to death. I took my passport out of my uh, briefcase and put it in my, I think it was in my left pocket, simply as as a tool, so somebody could actually uh, identify my body. I had a pocket knife. I put that in my other pocket because I just have this thing about sharks, you know, and we're going into tropical waters and there's a lot of them. And I thought, well, you know, I've got to have something to defend myself with if I, if I need to. And um, making sure the boots are off, no socks, rolled my jeans up. I just started to basically prepare myself for um, the pending crash.
3: We came out of the cloud, the Sash cloud at 15,000 feet. It took two or 3,000 feet of clear air before the engines fired up. I mean, if you ask me how many times we tried to start them on the way down, I have no idea. It was in the hundreds.
1: We knew that when the engines came on, we started to fly, and of course they, they, they actually started to ascend. Uh, everyone was just, hey, we're flying. You know, that's, we're flying, we're not gonna die. Captain Moody gave the second announcement, I think he said we're going to be in Jakarta and we should be landing in 10 minutes, I think it was, and that was it. Um, We had no idea that he then had to literally land
3: that plane blind. The landing was probably the most skillful bit of the whole lot because the front windscreens, both sides, were sandblasted and in fact had gone opaque. And there was just A little strip, and it wasn't very wide, down the edge of each front window and it left a little tiny clear strip and it was a real crew combined effort. The first officer called out the distance and the heights, the engineer monitored the engines and I sat over the edge until I could see the edge of the runway on my side and I slid back into the seat and the aeroplane virtually landed itself. It was a greaser. It did a beautiful landing.
1: When the plane landed, I felt that um, I'd been given a a reprieve and um, Captain Eric Moody um, is responsible for us being here today.
2: What would you say to Captain Moody if you had the chance to, to speak to him all these years later, 30 years on?
1: Oh, look, I would just simply uh, thank him for uh, basically saving my life.
2: What if I told you that he's waiting for your call right now so you can thank him yourself?
1: Really? That would be fantastic, yeah. That would be a, a lovely surprise for him and for me, I'm sure. Yeah, thank you. So shall we call him? Yeah, let's do. Yeah, please. How have you been referring to him? Is, is Captain or Eric or...?
3: Hello, Patrick.
2: Hello, Captain Moody. How are you?
3: Well, we're all right. I'm just
2: thinking about going out, actually. I have somebody on the line that would love to say hello to
1: you. Hello. (laughs) Who's that? Oh, Captain Moody. Hello. My name's Evan Dillner. I was uh, a passenger on the BA-9 flight. And I just wanted yeah. to take this opportunity to thank you and your crew uh, for the fantastic job you did and the fact that you uh, basically saved our lives on that, uh, on that fateful, uh, fateful night.
3: Well, that's very kind of you. But to be honest, there's always danger. Flying is a very dangerous game. I mean, I learned to fly when flying was really dangerous and sex was safe. When I retired in the, in the 90s, it had gone the other way around. But you put me under pressure, then I seem to go ultra calm. Uh, incredible 24 hours. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, so,
1: yeah. yeah.
3: yeah. Do, do you feel like a hero, Captain Moody? <laughs> I don't know what a hero feels like. I feel like me. I'm, I'm pleased I did a fair job. That's all I'll say about it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Look, we won't keep you uh, any longer, um, Captain Moody, but I just wanted to say thank you from the bottom of my heart for everything you did. um, Oh, it's a
3: pleasure. I wish you a long and happy life that's left, and uh, I want the same.
1: Yeah, me too. Thank you very much. You look after yourself.
3: Pleasure. Okay. Pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
1: The incident and the experience will be with me forever. I just live with it and um, it just doesn't go away.
4: Whoa,
0: Pat, what a ride bit of a slightly awkward phone call. It wasn't very Hollywood, was it? Do you think that Evan was let down, that he didn't get this big, momentous reunion with Captain Moody?
2: No, not at all. I think it was really momentous for Evan and Captain Moody, but that they just didn't really know what to say to each other. I mean, I was in the room with Evan and he definitely was was very emotional and very moved by it. And maybe we perhaps need that big movie ending, but I didn't get the feeling that they did. They were moved by it in their own... I don't know, older man, awkward kind of way, I guess. <laughs> Which is very endearing, actually. Yeah, and you know, that quick reconnection was enough to remind them, I think, of how lucky they both are to have survived.
0: And look, I suppose if a relative stranger wishes you a long and happy life 30 years after he piloted you to safety from a burning plane, you know, maybe that's all any of us could ever really hope for. I will say, even though Captain Moody saved the day, I am not particularly keen to get on a plane anytime soon.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. But look, let's not forget, thanks to Captain Moody, the plane didn't crash early. So that should reassure you that as long as you've got a top-notch pilot flying your plane, you're fine.
0: Yep, you're right. That's it. That's going to be my new 10-second rule. I'm just going to picture a stoic and professional Captain Moody sitting in the cockpit of any plane I get on from now on. Thanks to Pat Abood for reporting this episode of Days Like These and a big thanks to Evan Dilmer and Captain Moody for sharing their story. We hope you're enjoying the show. Please subscribe so we can keep you in the loop and give us a rating in your favourite podcast app. We would absolutely love to hear from you and any stories that you want us to know about. Please email us. We're at these at abc.net.au.
2: Next time on Days Like These... The story of a guy who really, really loves his job. He's basically like a human version of Tinder and he's got secrets he's going to take
3: to his grave. If I were to bump into that couple in the middle of the street, right now, I know I wouldn't tell them. I know for a fact I wouldn't tell them and I I never want them to find out. There's something about mystery that is much more beautiful than knowledge.
0: Days Like These is hosted by me, Elizabeth Kulas. Our lead reporter is the brilliant Pat Abud. And our season one reporting team includes Alex Lolbach, Sam Wicks and Monique Bowley. Our researcher is Tamar Cranswick. The supervising producer on this story was Rachel Fountain. And our digital team includes Andrew Davies and Michael Delaney. Sound design on this episode by Pat Abud and Kerry Dell. A huge thanks also to Timothy Nicastri and Stephen Tilley.
2: And you can follow me on Twitter, or even better, on Instagram, at Padabood. Go on, slide into my DMs anytime. I'd love to hear all your best stories from life. And you never know, they might end up on this show.
0: And finally, huge thanks to our incredible executive producers, Rachel Fountain and Ian Walker. Our fantastic theme song is Yeah Na by the Gooch Palms, courtesy of Ratbag Records and BMG. Extra music by Russell Stapleton. See you next time.
2: If you're in the mood for more mystery, silliness or crime podcasts, then check out Finding Desperado, the sequel to Finding Drago. Comedians and detectives, Alexi Toliopoulos and Cameron James, embark on a new adventure. This time, trying to track down a possible fake world record.
3: From the team that brought you Finding Drago.
4: This is Finding Desperado. Welcome to a new mystery. Just like the last one, it all begins with a book. The Guinness World Records. After skimming through this glorious golden tome, one record really jumped out at us. A record held by a man claiming to be the world's youngest filmmaker. A record that we believe is fake. Our search for this mysterious director and his world record winning film led us on a bizarre globetrotting journey across Europe into the underground world of VHS horror movies and of course, all over google.com. This is a story about trickery, lost films, famous frauds, And possibly fake Guinness World Records.
3: This is Finding Desperado.